0: This message first aired on the radio on April 16th, 2004. As we continue to look in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we look from the 3rd through the 12th verses here, we see that the Apostle continues his defense, and we want to remind ourselves this. It's necessary for the Apostle to defend his apostolic ministry with the Corinthians. It's also pathetic that he has to do so and this is a continuation now as we look at the 30 matters that he takes up in series. and This is about as long a series of discussion as the Apostle writes in any of his epistles. But as we we look at this we want to remember that one of the important things he told the Corinthians at the beginning of this epistle is that he didn't want them to be ignorant of the trouble that they had in Asia. Now when he says Asia he means Asia Minor. We have taken up in the past a considerable discussion of the difficulties Paul faced in Ephesus and why that was such a threshold matter. You'll see in that missionary journey that his trouble builds up to Ephesus and that the whole city is upside down with the gospel in Ephesus as a great work is done and that something significant also happened there that things were accomplished there. Uh, That is to say, that the Word of God effectively had come out to the Gentiles and Paul had the inkling at that point and certainly the beginning of the revelation of the marvelous thing that God was doing not in reestablishing Israel as one nation under God bringing in the kingdom of God but establishing this great mystery which is the church which is his body the mystery which has continued to this very day the mystery which we continue to preach because what God is doing today he set Israel aside and he's calling a people out for his name from the Jews and the Gentiles making no distinction and when we see that truth asserted fully and positively and completely especially in the epistle to the Ephesians to which we're heading we will see why the underpinnings of all these things are necessary for the Corinthians to understand especially that the ministry is a lot of trouble, and that the Apostle Paul was under tremendous stress and persecution. And not only did the Corinthians know that, so that they could align themselves with him, remember that they're fragmented, that they have their own agendas, that there is a great amount of schism going on in Corinth. He points out to them that to be effective in the age in which they live, they needed to be of one mind together, and they needed to be of one mind with him, and they needed to be wholly given to support the ministry of the Word of God. Well, my friend, it's no different today. We are in a spiritual war. That spiritual warfare is, first of all, against wicked spirits and not against flesh and blood. But we not only don't war against flesh and blood, but we don't war according to flesh and blood we war against wicked spirits in heavenly places, and we must war by spiritual means. The offensive weapon in the spiritual war is the Word of God, which if you've been born again has been implanted in you and the ministry of which you are called to support. Now of course most people when they hear about supporting ministry they consider that that means sending money to somebody somewhere and well, whereas that may be part of things, certainly that is not what the Apostle's talking about. There's no reference to money here. There has nothing to do with uh, his personal financial needs. He needs them to stop being disorderly among themselves, all get on one track, and understand that the ministry of the Word of God is the forefront of the spiritual war. So now he lists out, well, having said, I, uh, before we get to our list, Having said then, brethren, for example, in this first chapter of Second Corinthians, Brethren, we would not have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Now, we covered that when we were looking at the first chapter. I want to bring that back to your remembrance. And I also want to remind you, that the Apostle in defending his ministry is trying to set this church aright, and it is incumbent upon the preacher, preaching brother, it is incumbent upon you who are commissioned in the Word of God to not only teach the Word of God, but to shepherd the sheep in the local church where God has set you, to do the work of a shepherd so that God's people are aligned in a single mind in a single direction to be the underpinnings, we might even say the logistical support, of the spiritual war. And this is the problem that we have today. The reason that we don't fare well in the spiritual war against wicked spirits in heavenly places and why we are thrashing at our opportunity to win the hearts and minds of men and women is because we walk in our churches in a disorderly manner. And the Apostle is going to come down to that also here at the end of chapter 6, and we're going to look at the probably the most grievous offense among Christians, or one of the most grievous offenses that goes on among Christians, called the unequal yoke. Well, let's go through these 30 things, and we'll sort of sprint through them, because they are so tied together, and of course the apostle himself sprints through them. So we'll read again starting from verse three, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. Now we talked a little bit about this last time. What is an offense? An offense is a cause of stumbling. It is a real thing. It really causes someone to stumble. It is not a make-believe thing. For example, you may tell me, well, the way you talk about the scriptures, you're so blunt, you're so direct, that's offensive to me. Well, I have to judge if it's an actual offense. Does that stumble you? Uh, Maybe you don't like what I say, well, or the way I say it. I think, well, did I say it uh, the way that God wanted me to say it? And did I say the thing that God wanted me to say? Uh, Well, maybe you're just under conviction, you don't like it. You may say that's a cause of stumbling, but in fact, how is it that you're stumbling? This here give no offense or cause of stumbling actually has to do with misleading people, misleading people. We are not to mislead people so that the ministry of the Word of God is blamed for that which it does not do. The Word of God straightens people's lives. In fact, the worker or minister of the Word of God is called to do this, cut the Word of God straight. Paul told Timothy, he said, give diligence. Or study. Actually, that means give good effort. Give, put out a good effort. Give diligence in your life to show yourself approved unto God. That's between you and God. Show yourself approved unto God, a workman. And of course, among clergymen, being a workman, that's something hardly known, generally speaking. But among ministers of the Word of God, men called to preach God's Word, it's an essential to show yourself a workman that needs not to be ashamed. We've talked a lot about being ashamed at the coming of our Lord, being shamed whether absent or present, or being pleasing whether absent or present. The preacher of the Word of God must show himself to God in a way that he can have boldness and not be ashamed. A workman needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing or cutting straight the Word of Truth. This is the word orthotomeo, it means to, to cut straight, it has to do with setting oneself straightly in the Scriptures. The Scriptures need to be cut straight like material needed to be cut straight to make a tent. The Apostle knew that very well so that it could be stitched back together again in a functional way. One of the great problems we have is misapplying Scriptures, taking Scriptures that are to somebody else or that are about somebody else, applying them to ourselves, not understanding that God has a division between Jews, Gentiles, the Church of God, not understanding that the church is not Israel, uh, not understanding that the church which is his body is something that came into focus throughout the writing of the New Testament and that there was indeed a progress of doctrine as the Scripture was laid out. That's why we're taking these nine epistles in a row so that the progress of those doctrines can be cut straight and delivered to you properly, that you may walk uh, according to the Word of God indeed. Well this cutting straight uh, by the preacher, leads to walking straight by the believer. The cutting straight of the Scripture by the by the preacher leads to the walking straight by the hearer. And of course, the Word of God tells us that if we'll commit our way to the Lord, He will direct our paths, He will cause us to walk straightly. And when we err, we're to stay under the discipline of the Lord, so that that which is lame will be made to heal and not take us crookedly down the pathway of our Christian life. So, here we have the Apostle talking about the nature of the ministry, what he has to go through, and then he's going to talk about how the Corinthians need to line up according to the ministry. And so here it says, giving no offense, that is to say, not stumbling. You see, we don't tell people, step out of the light so that you stumble off into the darkness. The ministry is something that tells people how to walk in the light. And of course, when stumbling stones are thrown in the way of people, that is when they're misled, the ministry can be blamed if the Corinthians continue to act in the rather in the embarrassing way that they are acting, then the ministry will be blamed. It will begin to affect the work of the Apostle. After all, he told them that they are his letter. They are his letter of commendation. And so the Apostle now is growing in his intimacy as he delivers these truths, and now he unveils to them and to us what it is to participate in the ministry of the Word of God. And I think this is something underestimated and it ought not to become a surprise to the preacher when it happens to him and we have these things revealed to us so that when these things come along we're not surprised by them but we're actually encouraged by them because we see that they are part of the sufferings uh, for Christ or some of the fellowship that we have with him so what does he say well he says verse 4 but in all things approving ourselves as the minister of God verse four in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses. We talked about these a little bit. These are the conditions of life. We require patience. There are afflictions. These are the tribulations of life. This is the thlipsis, that the minister of the Word of God really calls to happen in his life. That's why the scripture says, Let not many of you be teachers knowing as such that you incur stricter judgment, not only here below but also at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, one of those things that comes to you as a minister of the Word of God is tribulation or afflictions, necessities. This uh, Necessities are wants. The minister of the Word of God always knows wants. He always knows the lack of something. And this is important that he does because as he knows and begins to live with want, He also can see the Lord deliver him from that want by providing all of his needs according to his riches in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't see the grace of God and maintain your independence before God Almighty, only himself, if you don't see him bring to you your resources. It is important that the minister of the word of God depend upon the Lord and the Lord only, without being graceless to those brothers and sisters who also minister with Him. In distresses, here we have distresses. This is the internal equivalent of the thlipsis, the afflictions. The afflictions are things put upon us. Distress is something we feel inside. And uh, of course, the distress that is inside uh, can lead to one of these other things called sleeplessness which we also see is one of the experiences of the minister of the Word of God, here the Apostle Paul, the preeminent servant of Jesus Christ. In stripes, that is beatings, imprisonments, in tumults, that is chaotic conditions, like the Apostle experienced in Ephesus, in labors, and this is hard labors, this is where it takes a lot of work, in watchings, this is sleeplessness, This has to do with that distress, keeping you awake at night as you think through things, and as uh, matters come to your attention, and you begin to worry about them and wonder about them, and remind yourself that instead of being anxious about things, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, pray to God about it, and with thanksgiving, and God will see you through through, and keep your mind in perfect peace in fastings. This has to do with not eating. Notice it's plural. The minister of the Word of God is expected to experience fastings. Well, these may be put on him, but fastings really, this is something different than necessity. This is the personal determination to fast. This is the personal determination to fast. And we see the Apostle doing it, and I think fasting is something that is perhaps well uh, certainly it's improperly taught. It's neglected in many cases and when it's taught it's taught improperly. You want to experience fasting, just quit eating. That's what you do. People say well you need to do this, you need to get your juices ready, you need to uh, give yourself to prayer first, etc, etc. No, fasting is just about not eating and you just stop doing that and see what happens. It's better felt than tell. I'm not going to carry on about it. You want to know what it means to fast? Quit eating, And uh, you say, well, how long should I quit eating? Well, quit eating until you decide to eat again. And uh, that time period in between there is a fast. Now, if you think that's four hours and you've done a fast, well, okay, very well. But you're not going to die, and you can go days without eating. The Lord went 40 days without eating, and it's up to you how long you go. But if you want to experience a fast, You just have to quit eating. And then when you start again, the time in between, that's your fasting, and you tell yourself what happens with you before God and see if it doesn't have a spiritual benefit. Well, we move along by pureness. Now he says in, this word by is really in, pureness, in, knowledge. This, The ministry is to be kept in this way. You see, faith has to be kept in a good conscience. Otherwise, you'll shipwreck your faith. Many preachers of the word of God have shipwrecked their faith. Many Christians have shipwrecked their faith. Instead of holding faith in a good conscience, they try to hold the faith and a bad conscience at the same time, and therefore they are not pure. They have mixed motives. This pureness has to do with holiness. It has to be doing with set apart unto the Lord. You can't serve be the servant of the Lord and the servant of mammon For example, you can't serve both God and man at the same time, so you lose your pureness when you lose your holiness, and your holiness is separation unto God's purpose and God's purpose alone. We'll continue this list in just a minute. I'm John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. As we continue to look through this list of experiences of the Apostle, I want to remind us all that he uses the first person plural in this list, verse 4, approving ourselves. I believe this is a horizontal and vertical plural. It has to do with those who are with him. He's never absolutely alone. Only the Lord Jesus Christ was absolutely alone. Always the Lord provides you Brothers, sisters, along the journey. This is the great grace of God. And when I say provide you brothers and sisters along your Christian journey, I mean provide you some brothers and sisters. Well, it may only be Luke and a couple of others. Maybe it's just Luke and Timothy. Maybe it gets down to one or two. But I mean like-minded brothers who are experiencing the Christian journey and all of these things, the afflictions, the necessities, the distresses, and so forth, right there with you. I think of Luke and how it was that he went through so much with the Apostle that he even remained with him as the Apostle was imprisoned, Luke virtually imprisoning himself with the Apostle just to be with him. I say virtually. Now, here we see pureness. We've talked about our separation. And preaching, brother of mine, maybe have lost your separation. Let me assure you there is grace for you. There is grace in every step of every Christian life, including your own, and God can restore you if you'll just turn to him as he calls you according to his word. By pureness, by knowledge, here we are to walk in knowledge, we're to maintain knowledge. By long-suffering, this is something a little bit different than patience, this long-suffering. Patience just has to do with waiting for the Lord. Long-suffering has to do with putting up with the enmity and opposition of men. God also is not only patient in that he waits for his proper timing, but he's long-suffering with us. In fact, the Apostle Peter says we can count our salvation, the salvation of our Christian lives, the fruitfulness of our Christian lives, as being a product of the long-suffering of the Lord, how he puts up with us we see we also ought to put up therefore with others by kindness here's our friend kindness now kindness doesn't mean politeness kindness doesn't mean gentleness gentleness is a different word it's an important aspect of Christian character but this kindness here we've talked about it before kindness has to do with arranging your life to be useful for others. What really is kind here, when we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, we looked at love is kind. What kindness has to do with is arranging your lives not to please yourself but to serve others. And that doesn't necessarily mean you arrange your life the way others want you to. You arrange your life to serve them in ways they may not even know or, by the way, may not want or call for. And so in kindness, in the Holy Ghost, of course, uh, empowered by that new nature that we've been given, walking by grace through faith at every step, and by love unpretended. This now is agape. This is the more perfect way, and it's not pretended. You know, so much of the Christian life today is pretended that we end up lying to one another. Aren't you tired of the pretense? Aren't you tired of pretending? Well, you need to face that in your own life. Maybe you pretend because you're a man-pleaser, because you're a conflict avoider, because you refuse to walk by grace through faith, and you'd rather walk with eye service to men, so forth. I know, if you're a child of God, that that bothers you, that you get tired of it from time to time. Well, now, if you're tired of it while you're listening to this message, let me say you don't have to pretend you're love. God will work a real love. And if you're pretending your love to someone, if you're trying to be nicey-nicey, always say the right thing, and you know you have a heartfelt despising for people, let me say, first deal with yourself about that and acknowledge it about yourself. Acknowledge it to God. Lord, I despise this person. I don't like this person. I feel horrible about this person, and I don't like my own thoughts about it. But this is the fact. And you let just tell the Lord that. Don't promise Him you'll do this or that. Uh, Don't run off to that person and tell them all the horrible stuff you think about them, uh, unburdening your bad conscience on them. Give your bad conscience to the Lord and pray for that person, and you will see that God will move your disposition and he'll move your affections in the direction of that person and he'll sort you out on it and it won't be as painful as you think it is in fact it won't be painful at all you'll leave that burden with God this has to do with unpretended love and uh, I know that pretended love is easier for the short term and I know that you don't think that you can have unpretended love for the brethren And this is what agape, by the way, is about love for the brethren, primarily. I know you don't think you can have it in an unpretended way because you don't like those people. You know the old saw, oh, to dwell above with the saints in love, that would be glory. But to dwell here below with the saints that I know, that's another story. You've heard that old saw. Well, let me tell you, drop the pretense. You get to be yourself God has a solution for all of that. The apostle had unfeigned affection. And if you read the life of the apostle and you look at the scriptures and understand the way he was, he was a fiery and tough guy, but unpretended in his Christian love. Now he says uh, in verse 7, through the word of truth, or literally here in verse 7, he's saying by the word of truth by the power of God. Uh, These are now the methodologies that he uses or the implements that he uses. He uses the word of truth, he uses the power of God, he uses the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. This is the equipment of God's minister. And now he says in verse 8, in honor and dishonor, by evil and good report. We have here a whole series, verses 8 through 10, we have a whole series of oxymorons here. I know the figure of speech oxymoron is often confused with a contradiction in terms, but an oxymoron is actually something that doesn't make sense at all on the face of it, but that does make sense underneath it. And of course on the face of this, where he says by honor and dishonor, you say well that, now how it can't be both honor and dishonor, it has to be one or the other But he doesn't say by honor or dishonor. He says by both at the same time. On the face of it, that's a contradiction in terms. It's a meaningless statement. But underneath that one, we see that honor and dishonor can coexist as long as we ascribe the one to one and the other to the other. And so here he says the honor, by honor and dishonor, he has honor with God and with God's people. He has dishonor with the world. And then he says, by evil report and good report. Of course, he receives an evil report from the world. They call him an evildoer. And let me tell you, ministering brother, preaching friend, if you're in the ministry of the Word of God, you will become known as an evil doer in the world. The world loves its own. If you were of the world, it would love you. But the world hates the Lord Jesus Christ and his servants. And so sooner or later from time to time you'll become known by the world that wicked, evil, horrible world as an evil doer yourself. Well, woe to them that call good evil and evil good, but that is part and parcel of the ministry of the word of God is to be able to live with an evil report by those who are evil and by those who are in the world and with a good report by those who are in the faith. And so here he says, I have a dysphemia and a euphemia. I have an evil report and a good report. And I live with both as deceivers and yet true. Well, the word yet here is in italics. It's the same kind of oxymoron as a deceiver and a true one. And, of course, this is another thing that the apostle lived with. He was called a deceiver. The Lord Jesus Christ was called a deceiver. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ is himself the truth and the Apostle Paul was called a deceiver in the process of bringing the truth to his own people Israel as well as the Gentiles verse 9 as unknown and yet well known so here now he says as one who is unknown as one who is without being known without knowledge and also as one who knows very well this doesn't have to do with popularity this has to do with these being regarded as an ignorant person despite the fact that he has deep detailed knowledge and so it is often the case especially among college professors for example those haters of God those ignorant men themselves that they will brand and characterize the preacher of the Word of God as somebody ignorant somebody backward when in fact the man who knows the Word of God is truly educated and has detailed knowledge of important things. That is to say, higher knowledge. And that's what he says here, is treated as one who is ignorant and yet has deep detailed higher knowledge. Now he says, behold, he says, as dying and yet behold we live. This has to do with bearing about the dying of the Lord Jesus in the body. We know that this body is passing away, We know that we face death at every hour, every moment. This is a fact of Scripture, whether you notice it in the circumstances of your life or not. And yet we know that we have eternal life. And so he says, Behold, as he says, dying and behold, look at this, we live, and we don't just live for now, we live forever, as chastened and not killed. Well this has to do with being child trained, and yet not executed and the child training here is the child training of God, this paduo. This has to do with elementary child training because what God does is He takes His children, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, He gives right to become the children of God, and He makes them sons. This has to do with the maturation process. When we become a child of God, we become a technia, we're a little child. But God doesn't want us to remain children. He wants to bring us into full sonship. Well, what does it mean to be in full sonship and to behave as a son instead of a child in the faith? Romans 8 tells us, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons or the mature ones of God. The apostle here talking about what it is to be led by the Spirit of God and to be in the ministry of the Word of God involved in all of these apparent contradictions which are resolved in knowledge according to faith in Jesus Christ. And now he says, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows, he wasn't a man of laughter, and yet he's rejoicing. Yet the apostle rejoices, though sorrows are put upon him, and uh, Christian life is not some plastic smiley face. You want to go get a plastic smiley face, I suppose you can buy one, you could buy a mask and just wear it, or if uh, that's too apparent you can do the more subtle thing and go to one of these how to win friends and influence people courses you get for ninety nine bucks and walk around with a smile and say people's first names three times hi bill nice to meet you bill sure good to see you bill that kind of thing that's the kind of life you want to live but the christian life is an authentic and genuine kind of life and it is a life of sorrows and yet in the midst of the sorrows always rejoicing. Not rejoicing in circumstances, not rejoicing in the afflictions that you know, not rejoicing in the circumstances of life, but rejoicing in that you know that you please our Savior who is able to reward you with many crowns. And finally here he says, as poor, yet making many rich. We touched on this last time, and we'll touch on it again here now. God told Abraham, he said, be a blessing. God blessed Abraham so that Abraham could be a blessing to others. Part of the extension of kindness, we arrange ourselves to serve others, but we should have a deep desire that we are blessings to others. I'm a little bit impressed, not positively, about this recent bout that Christianity has had, this trend about the prayer of Jabez oh that God would bless me and I realize that you know it's just a one or two verses of scripture and uh, that made it very convenient for people uh, to try to get something from God but in fact the Christian prayer is not the prayer of Jabez the Christian desire is not to be blessed by God except to be a blessing to others and so he says as poor yet making many rich now that doesn't have to do with material wealth necessarily but it might at times have to do with material wealth. It can be the case that a preacher helps the believers to become materially prosperous. Certainly the Apostle Paul seemed to do that, but here of course having to do with those riches that endure primarily as poor in spirit, as poor in the matter of earthly wealth. The Apostle Paul, who was once a wealthy man, certainly became a poor man by entering into the ministry. That'll be a lesson to you, preaching, brother, and yet making many rich in the faith. And then as having nothing and yet possessing all things. The pathetic condition at the end of the Apostle Paul's life is he didn't even have a coat, and he needed somebody to pick up a cloak at at Troas for him. We have no idea if that actually happened, and he said, but especially the parchments. He had writings that he needed and he got to a place where he had nothing, and yet was a possessor of all things because he had the true riches that are in Jesus Christ. Now he points out his great affection and his deep affection for the Corinthians before he brings this uh, needed truth to them, this needed correction to them, this needed exhortation to them about the unequal yoke, which we will take up in just a minute. He points out first, he says, O Corinthians, our mouth is open. What does that mean? That means he has Great freedom of speech here. This has to do with a figure of speech that he's taking great liberty in talking to them right now. And then he says also, and unto you our heart is enlarged. He says, look, I don't just have a wide open mouth. I have a wide open heart. Verse 12, you are not straightened in us. He says here, look, we're not bringing to you this kind of problem, these distresses. We're not bringing you distresses. The distresses that you're bringing, you bring upon yourself. You are not straightened by us, but you are straightened in your own bowels. Your own affections are that which is causing your own distress. And I'm here to correct him, and he is there to correct him, and he corrects him in the discussion of the unequal yoke, which we will take up in just a minute. I'm John Malone, and this is BibleStudy.net. In 2 Corinthians 6.13 through chapter 7, verse 3, we have the Apostle demonstrating his love for the Corinthians by telling them the thing that's difficult for them to hear. And that's one of the things that a preacher has to do. He has to maintain his affections for those to whom he preaches and at the same time tell them the things that they don't necessarily want to hear. Here he has pointed out that the Corinthians have created some of their own distresses and he's going to take up the main reason why that is But he turns first to verse 13 to reassure them. He says, Now for a recompense in the same, I speak unto you as my children, be you also enlarged. He said, Now listen here, I've got my mouth wide open, I'm going to speak very directly to you. And he says, I've got my heart wide open to you, I really care for you. But now you need on the other hand to have your heart open to hear this thing that I have to say to you. You are causing yourself a great deal of trouble. Now the Apostle knew that the Corinthians were calling him tr- themselves trouble because no doubt before the writing of this epistle he had heard for not only from Timothy which he said he did but he's likely to have also heard from Titus that the fact is that first epistle wasn't as effective as it needed to be and so he had to write to them here a second time. Now the Apostle visited him in person once, he wrote to him twice, so this is really the third time that he's reaching them We see that later in this epistle. Remember that he told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for example to put out the wicked person that was in their midst who was offending beyond that which even the Gentiles tolerate, one who is having his father's wife, likely not his own mother, but his father's wife, and they did that and then he repented and he said now in this epistle he says you need to receive this fellow back, you don't want to go to the other side and be unmerciful people, But the fact is, they had more problems than just that. He also had talked to them about fornication, told them that every other sin was outside the body, but that was one against his own body. But here now we get down to the kind of problem that comes from being unfaithful to the Word of God as a group of believers. And this is a problem that has predominated in our own age. It's in every church. Almost every group of Christians I meet that are my age, and I'm in my fifties, I'm a grandfather, almost every Christian that I meet that has children and would either have grandchildren or want to have grandchildren has unequal yokes in their family. So we look at this, verse 14, Be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers? For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what agreement has Christ with Belial? And what part or what inheritance has he that believes with an infidel? Friend of mine, the answer to every one of these questions is none. There is no reason that these two should be hooked together in either case. What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? None. What communion has light with darkness? None. What concord has Christ with Belial or worthless people? None. And what part has he that believes with an infidel? None. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. Well, if that's the case, why are all these unequal yokes? We're going to look at what that is. Here, let's let's talk about what an unequal yoke is and how we get ourselves into them. The single word for unequal yoke is a compound word. It is a compound word hetero zugeo. Zugeo is the word for yoking together. This has to do with putting animals to plow together and you may have a single yoked ox cart, you may have a double yoked plow and those are the rectangles that harness the animal. That's a yoke, that's a zugeo, and here we have the word hetero and the word hetero is the word for another but it's one of a different kind. It's not one of the same kind. We have the word allos, one of the same kind. We have the word heteros, one of a different kind. And so we put these two together and it comes up with yoking of different kinds. That's what an unequal yoke is. It's a yoking of different kinds. Well we see that this passage of scripture about the unequal yoke is an oblique reference to Deuteronomy the 22nd chapter where we find uh, in the 10th verse this unusual statement well really we find in the 9th 10th and 11th verses a few unusual statements that are laid out for us more clearly under the inspired word of here 2nd Corinthians 6 verse 9 tells us Deuteronomy 22 thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with diverse seeds That is to say, in your vineyard, you don't put two different seeds in there, Uh, lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown and the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. Well, there's spiritual application to that. We'll take that up at another time. But verse 10, Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. These are two animals of different kinds. It was forbidden in the book of Deuteronomy. One of these, a clean animal, the ox. The other, an unclean animal, the ass. And, uh, of course, the ox was also a very large animal. The ass is not a very large animal. And so it was an uncomfortable yoke also for the ass. So, here we see uh, the apostle telling the Corinthians, Be not unequally yoked, or heterozugeo. Do not be yoked together with those of a different kind. Well, what is this yoke together? Obviously, being yoked together, marriage is the greatest yoke. Marriage called bondage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, Marriage is the strongest yoke. Be not yoked together with those of a different kind. Let me tell you that even the apostle says that he was not free to lead about a wife who was not saved, and there is no liberty and there is no freedom for Christians to marry unbelievers. As one who is called upon to solemnize marriages from time to time, let me tell you that I will solemnize the marriage of two unbelievers as long as they believe that God instituted marriage and they're willing to take vows one to another within the confines of what God has established for marriage. After all, God has given marriage to the whole world, not just to believers. But let me tell you this, I would never solemnize the union of a believer and an unbeliever. I would just refuse to do it because the Scripture does not give liberty for anyone to marry the unbeliever. Now the Apostle dealt with the circumstances where a believer and an unbeliever were married in Corinth in Verse seven, but it, what it, uh, excuse me in chapter seven of the first epistle of the Corinthians, but what it had to do with is someone becoming saved and then staying with his lost spouse. That's a whole other matter than to go off and marry an unbeliever. And today, my Christian friends that I meet, new acquaintances, so forth, I find that their children are on almost a universal case, marrying up unbelievers, devastating circumstances to a family. But the unequal yoke is not merely about marriage. It's any kind of yoking. We're not to yoke ourselves with unbelievers. It will not be productive for either one of us spiritually. It won't be good for the unbeliever, it won't be good for you. You say, well yeah, but if I go into business with this guy, he's a good partner, I'll make good money. Let me tell you, it's costly to walk the Christian life. And that's just a test for you, my friend. Do not be partners with unbelievers in business, do not yoke yourselves with unbelievers, we are to maintain separation. If we don't maintain a proper separation from the world, we become compromised and we lose our opportunity to walk as mature Christians. You say, but that is so costly, that is so horrible, what will become of me? if I can't have partners with my lost buddies, if I can't have these deep relationships that I've already got, some of them are my family, and they're not saved, what will become of me? Well, the apostle answers that in this exhortation, which, by the way, is hard for all of us to hear at some time or other, in some circumstance or other. What agreement has the temple of God with idols, or the temple of idols, he says in verse 16, for you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." This here, now quoted from the 26th chapter of Leviticus, this having to do with God's promise that he will walk in his people, he will take care of his people. And then he says in verse 17, the apostle here, quoting now Isaiah 52, "...wherefore come out from among them, and be you separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you." God doesn't tell you to avoid the unequal yoke without giving you a marvelous set of promises here about your obedience to that. First of all, He wants to deliver you from the unequal yoke, because it is bondage, and this has to do with God liberating and setting us free, not with God penalizing and punishing us. He says, come out from among them, and I'll receive you." If you go look at Isaiah 52, if you'll go look there, you will see that that has to do with the liberation of God's people from the bondage they've been in all their lives since the captivity. He says, "...come out from among them, be you separate," saith the Lord, "...and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you." You say, "...what will become of me?" Well, what will become of you is that God will receive you, and verse 18, "...and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So now the question becomes this. Do you want to be a mature son or daughter of God the Father? Or do you want to fend for yourself and make your way with these unequal yokes that you're in? Now I've known men who find themselves, for example, an unequal yoke in business. And they call out to God and God delivers them. It may be very costly, but God will deliver them from that unequal yoke In fact, generally speaking, as they pray to God, that lost partner will be the one making the overture to make the split. You want to know how to walk that way? You just walk in the grace of God through faith. You commit your ways to God. You can tell God this, Lord, I've erred. I see myself in an unequal yoke. I need to be delivered. Now, if you're married to an unbeliever, of course, you have the instruction. 1 Corinthians 7, if they're pleased to stay with you, then That's just the bondage that you're in. You pray for them. God has sanctified that party and God will do a work and we anticipate, the way the Scripture reads, we anticipate that that person will become saved or depart from you. I don't say that this necessarily the case, but that's anticipated in the Scripture. And also these yokes with unbelievers will render your Christian life a useless thing and you'll remain immature. You may say, well that cost me a lot of money to break these yokes. Well, the question is this, do you want to be a mature Christian or do you want to continue to live the kind of Christian life that you're in? Well now chapter 7 verses 1, 2, and 3, we see how the Apostle closes out this advice. He says, having therefore these promises, and notice He's not focusing on the consequences of getting out of unequal yokes, or really, it's better never enter into one. And you go ahead and tell your children, you quit dating that lost girl. Uh, I'm not going to attend the wedding, your wedding, with that lost person. You go ahead and take a stand, my dear brother or sister, and see if God won't honor you in it. But he says, Now, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, what promises? That God will receive us, that God will dwell in us, and that He'll walk in us, and that He'll receive us as sons and daughters. Having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, that is our separation, in the fear of God. So here is a call to separation. It may be costly but it's worth it because it's liberating and because God promises you his reception. Receive us he tells the Corinthians. That is to say listen to us. Receive us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have defrauded no one. He points out look we haven't hurt you ever a bit. Receive what we have to say. Verse 3, I speak not this to condemn you He says, I'm not speaking this to bring condemnation on you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die and live with you. What does he desire for them? Well despite the fact that this advice and that these commands may seem to be difficult to the hearer, which he anticipates, he says, look, we're not defrauding, we're not hurting anybody here, we're not corrupting anybody here, we love you and we seek your best interest friend of mine, brother or sister, the avoidance of the unequal yoke is an extremely important thing. And if you've found yourself in it, call out to God. He will deliver you. There's grace for you according to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's it for now. We'll take up next time Second Corinthians chapter 7. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone, and may God bless your meditation in his word.